Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. One of the topics we have tackled repeatedly on this show is the rise of right-wing power and how we can fight it. Today, we are going to hear from multiple people whose insights, I think, are deeply important in this moment, including authors Shane Burley and Sarah Kenzier, writer and organizer Harsha Walia, and the president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, Mimi Marziani. After a recent right-wing rally in the Capitol turned out to be a flop, I am a little concerned that people might have the wrong idea about the state of right-wing power and how it's manifesting in our lives and in our politics. Trumpian movements are in disarray, and we are seeing some messy outcomes for them, like Gavin Newsom's swift defeat of a recall effort in California, and thousands upon thousands of Republicans dying of a preventable illness. But as evidenced by the spread of COVID-19, people in a state of disarray can still have tremendous impacts. Right-wing movements also have the benefit of being strategically aligned with the Republican establishment, whose decades-long scheme to create a reboot of the Jim Crow era is fully on track. So with the help of today's contributors, we are going to reflect on what we should expect from right-wing movements in the coming months, and what we should be doing to alter our current political trajectory. Because if we stay on our current course, I don't think any of us are going to be happy with where it lands us. So about that rally that flopped in D.C., I can understand how the specter of more chaos in the Capitol may have been very attention-grabbing after what happened on January 6th, but the popular sentiment among right-wing conspiracy theorists in the run-up to September 18th was that this event was a false flag, and that its real purpose was to deliver them into the hands of law enforcement. So this was not a party they were ever excited about attending. For the right, the current political moment is not about spectacles outside the Capitol, It is a moment of mass participation at the local level and online, however off-kilter or incoherent some of that participation might be. We are seeing right-wing protesters descend upon school board meetings to rage against masking and critical race theory. And while some of those interventions are disorganized and chaotic, the Leadership Institute, which has trained generations of right-wing activists, is also running a 20-hour online course to train Republicans to run for local school board seats on platforms attacking critical race theory. That organization was apparently following the lead of Intercessors for America, a group of so-called prayer warriors for Trump who created a toolkit to help people who are angry about CRT run for their local school boards. These attacks on what's being characterized as critical race theory in schools are a battle over reality waged by a group of people who are immersed in their own fiction. And their mission is to prevent any accurate accounting of this country's racist and genocidal history. We are also seeing militant opposition to vaccines among right-wing groups and zealots, and it's important that we understand the resulting escalations in mass death that we are witnessing as political outcomes, because these fatal acts of harm and self-harm are, for many people, highly political. And as Republicans pass waves of draconian legislation at the state level, we are seeing right-wing activists being welcomed by Republican officials into vigilante roles that position them as enforcers in emerging voter suppression efforts, violence against protesters, and the policing of reproductive rights. 
Police and Border Patrol agents continue to enjoy bipartisan support for their violence as Democrats trip over themselves to establish that they're pro-cop. According to the Washington Post, 921 people have been shot and killed by the police in the last year. Black, Latinx, Native, and disabled people are, as always, experiencing disproportionate levels of police violence. On Sunday, the El Paso Times reported that a border control agent on horseback struck Haitian refugees with a whip. Even though law enforcement agencies have bipartisan support, they are aggressively fascistic entities, both in their practices and in their politics, and their incredible reach has to be taken into consideration when we examine the state of right-wing power in the U.S. All of that said, I promise this is not an episode about how screwed we are, because I don't subscribe to that kind of thinking, but I do think we need to understand what we're up against and contemplate what the moment demands of us. And personally, when I think about the movement work that needs to be done, I see a lot of hope in that work. And for me, that work is really the only place where hope resides. Because if I thought this all came down to supporting the Democrats in a fight against the Republicans, I would crawl under my bed. This is about us, as everyday people, reorienting ourselves and our politics in an era of crisis and challenging entire systems to make change. And that is work that I believe we can do. So when I'm trying to make sense of the far right, one of the first people I turn to is my friend Shane Burley, the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and Why We Fight. Over the weekend, I asked Shane for a brief rundown on the current state of right-wing power, and this is what he had to say. be gone, but he left his imprint on the GOP and that will last for a very, very long time. But he has also left an imprint on the base of the GOP, which has a reciprocal leg relationship with this, the their actual party leaders, which are in state power. So that gives them a reciprocal relationship with state power. And so I think what you're actually going to see is there's been obviously a shift to the far right on policy issues like abortion or on immigration. And you're going to see for them to work with their base in that enforcement mechanism. So this happens in both official and unofficial capacity. So in official capacities, you know, there's obviously like the reporting on each other uh, kind of dynamic around the Texas anti-abortion laws. There's also the same thing in immigration laws, and this was really true in like SB 1070 in Arizona years back, which I think we'll see repeated as organizations like like FAIR or Numbers USA push for immigration policy that involves the GOP base, lets people kind of participate. And there's also the kind of other signaling of social control that happens between like the political right and state power as expressed in the police and on the grand vigilante groups like the Proud Boys that enforce a certain kind of social control. There is that back and forth relationship. So Trump may be gone and, uh, you know, no one's more happy about that than I am, but that dynamic re- remains. And what's happened over the last two years is that the GOP base has heard, but they've been radicalized. They've been pushed further to the right. And they've also heard that they're invited to participate in this. And so I think you're going to see the logic of participation carrying itself out a lot. That's what happened all through the, the kind of um, rebellion against the mask mandates was that invitation 
invitation to participate. We oppose the mask mandates at a policy level. You oppose them at the grassroots, uh, you know, ground up level. And that's happening. That back and forth is continuing and it's continuing to radicalize. The Texas law is not going to be the only thing. Uh, they're going to push more of these and they're likely going to push immigration re restrictions and they're going to uh, uh, push um, a huge amount of voter restriction laws, which are going to require people on the ground to report things to participate in that some way. And I think what the GOP's uh, political stake in this is hoping to stave off demographic changes in voting patterns by restricting demographic groups from voting um, because they believe that they're going to be basically in 10, 15, 20 years, their base isn't going to exist. And so this is the kind of grasp that they're going to hold on to. This. And I, because the the Democratic Party is not a party of the left and they're not uh, ones to, to live in the real world about the opposition that they're facing, they're, they just simply do not have the capacity to put up a resistance to that. The radical left involves itself much less in electoral politics than the radical right does, so they don't have that base there either. So I think it's really difficult to see what the pathway to protect against those specific things are. Obviously, large on-the-ground mass movements are always a useful thing, but the functionality, how, what strategies and tactics they take, I think is more confusing. What, what right-wing movements do, but far-right especially, is they, they capitalize on these edge kind of arguments or these edge pieces of energy. Right now, that's around demasking and vaccines. So they're, you know, kind of... Um, not disingenuously, but exploitatively uh, joining up with these anti-mask protests. They did this in Olympia, Washington recently, where they're trying to protest vaccine mandates. Um, and that's, I think, where they're going to drive a lot of their energy. And what's what's concerning about those is that those are not just far-right rallies in as much as we think of the far-right as Proud Boys or formal white nationalist organizations. These are really large masses of unincorporated people. And that's what the far-right wants. They want to find masses of people that they can act as a vanguard within. So that's what they're doing now. And I think that the far right is pumping conspiracy energy into vaccine mandate discussions and mask mandate discussions so much that that's going to lead also to kind of seemingly impulsive acts of violence, these regional acts of violence. But it's also on the flip side, because of the merger of the far right with kind of the central apparatus of the GOP in a lot of areas, they're actually having real influence on state policy as well. So we're not going to be able to get over the hump on appropriate vaccine and CDC guideline applications uh, because of these movements. And I think that's going to keep the uh, virus continuing and that's going to keep the conditions that build far-right movements and it's going to build on itself over time and, and continue forward. There's really not an end in sight to this process. Hopefully there's a, enough that has been done in terms of the vaccination campaigns that in the next year or so we'll start to see some changes, but it's there. They are working so hard to maintain these conditions that it's really hard to see. Some people may be confused as to how our trajectory could be quite so bleak if the Democrats have control of the House, Senate, and the presidency. With that kind of helm control, the Republicans would govern mercilessly, and they would most likely reconfigure the rules to ensure that they never lost power again. But the Democrats have thus far proven unable to pass voting rights legislation, which means that in addition to failing to address issues like climate change, which are a matter of survival for most life on Earth, the Democrats appear poised to allow Republicans to gain permanent control of the federal government. 
My friend Sarah Kenzier, author of Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, recently shared some thoughts with me about the state of voting rights in the U.S. I think one of the biggest dangers, you know, that I've been harping on for a long time is the attack on voting rights, um, you know, going back to the partial repeal of the VRA in 2013 and the refusal of, um, you know, various officials in power to remedy that. You know, they campaigned on promises to remedy that. The, the Democrats did. This was a cornerstone of all of these Democratic campaigns. And they pointed to, you know, victories in Georgia, um, you know, an unexpected, uh, you know, House victories in 2018 um, as evidence of this, that we're in some sort of, you know, new era of empowerment and then have gone on to do basically nothing to protect it. And they treat it as an optional issue, which is both, you know, it's legally insulting because they're throwing away a constitutionally right. It's morally abhorrent because many of the activists and volunteers who were out there campaigning, uh, you know, for the Democratic Party during a pandemic are the ones most likely to be impacted by this mass disenfranchisement um, that is going to happen, especially in places like Georgia, places like Florida, where it's not just a matter of traditional voter suppression methods, but of state legislatures being able to literally throw away your vote. And of course, if you can't vote, then your impact on policy decisions and on um, you know things that are going to be enacted is going to be limited. And I know this because in Missouri, they've already gone this route. Like we voted for progressive ballot initiatives, uh, protection of labor unions, raising the minimum wage, getting dark money out of politics, all this stuff in 2018. And then the GOP legislature is this like, yeah, screw you. We're not going to do any of that. And our votes were meaningless. And it's just that same, um, you know, philosophy and action extended to actual uh, candidates, actual potential politicians. So they're digging their own graves here and it's going to have ramifications into other fields. So there's that like on a structural level. But then we also have all of these violent far right groups that were already there, that have already shown they're serious. Um, you know, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, all of the other um, kind of militant groups, often white supremacist groups that showed up uh, in the Capitol attack, and they were not held accountable. You know, the government has only pursued uh, low-hanging fruit. And by pursued, I don't even mean arrest. I mean exposed and highlighted and looked at the mechanisms of organization, of funding, of permissibility, of who gets a pass. Because if you look at who is organizing this stuff, it's, you know, people like Michael Flynn, Steve Bannon, uh, Roger Stone, Lynn Wood, very wealthy, very powerful actors. So this is not quite, you know, the grassroots movement it's presented. It's uh, being led by people who want to turn the United States into a very different type of country and even uh, worse situation than we currently have. And the current situation is very bad or to destroy it um, for their own profit and personal gain. And all of this is being treated as if it's like a hypothetical scenario or if it's not really happening, like it's happening right now. Um, it's an ongoing emergency. And, you know, I'm, I have, I guess, theories about why the Democrats are so incredibly uh, 
and effective in combating this. But at this point, you know, complacency is complicity. There is no difference. And we are the people who have to bear um, the brunt of it. You know, ordinary Americans already living in a, a very difficult, very chaotic environment with the pandemic and, um, you know, with all of this, um, you know, uncertainty that we've been through in the last few years have to deal with this on top of it. It's just abdication of um, responsibility toward the public and toward the public good. And uh, yeah, I don't know what's coming, but unless they take things head on, unless they confront these problems directly and communicate with the American public honestly, then I I don't see better days in sight. Because if people don't understand the extent of the problem, they're not going to be able to envision, um, you know, solutions or, or new ways of, you know, being as a country, as a society or what have you. In the realm of voter suppression, Texas lawmakers also recently passed Senate Bill 1, an expansive voter suppression bill which, like the state's civilly enforced abortion ban, enlists the assistance of everyday people in suppressing the rights of their neighbors. The law boosts protections for partisan poll watchers who will most likely escalate their harassment of black and brown voters. The bill also complicates or eliminates voting methods that are popular among disabled voters, elderly voters, and Black and Latinx voters. Republican officials were especially determined to quash innovations that were popular in Harris County, such as drive-through voting and a 24-hour voting day, likely because Biden led Trump by about 30 points in that county. People who want to help disabled voters fill out their ballots in Texas will now have to submit to an application process, and any misstep on their part could lead to criminal charges. The bill also makes it a felony for election officials to send out unsolicited mail-in ballot applications to voters. Importantly, the bill also feeds into Republican myths about voter fraud and the vilification of migrants by creating a monthly review system to check the state's voting rolls for undocumented voters even though there are few to no known cases of undocumented people voting in Texas. I recently talked with the president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, Mimi Marziani, whose group is helping to wage the current legal fight against this bill. She had an ask for our listeners and also some thoughts about the emotional nature of the moment. restrictions on voting are deliberate. They are meant to make voting more difficult, especially for people of color, for younger people, for people with disabilities, in some cases for women. And they um, are are meant to do so. And so the people who are currently in power can, can stay in power. And when that happens, the democratic process has broken down. It's been perverted. And we know time and time again in our history, that that is a you know <laughs> uh, big green light when the federal government has to get involved. So the number one thing people can do is call their senators. The the um, House of Representatives has already passed a couple of voting rights bills. They have already demonstrated that they they have the appetite and the will to pass this. It keeps falling in the Senate, and in fact, out just this week is a new. Um, measure that, as I understand it, is, you know, has the buy-in of, um, uh, of, of lawmakers from kind of a, across a range of political viewpoints. 
And so, you know, the law exists. We just need the political will to get this done in the U.S. Senate. You know, the other thing that I would say is to recognize that even though this has been a hard year in Texas, and believe me, I mean, we are in court fighting um, SD1 on behalf of community groups, and we're going to continue fighting as hard as we can. But um, that, that I think it's also important to recognize that we just saw evidence of the power of community organizing, of collaboration, of diverse coalitions. Those were the elements that allowed us in Texas to um, mitigate, I think, some of the worst possible provisions that could have been in this bill, and ultimately they weren't. And so, you know, to me, that reminds me why it is so important that everyday people get involved. I mean, you know, we saw throughout this legislative session over and over hundreds of people driving from across the state and waiting to testify um, until, you know, three, four in the morning uh, against this uh, SD1 bill. Uh, you know, the irony was not lost, by the way, that people were waiting, that, that lawmakers were doing their business and four in the morning and had such urgency, they couldn't just wait until the next day where that would have been much more convenient to people. But they're forcing people to stay up all night to pass a bill that would prohibit voting at those exact hours. So we should all nod to that irony. Um, that said, people did it. People persevered and they did it. I mean, I, I had the huge um, fortune to speak at a number of large rallies throughout the legislative session where thousands and thousands and thousands of people turned out from faith leaders to civil rights leaders to Willie Nelson. I mean, so to business leaders and, and then thousands and thousands of everyday citizens. And you know, together we were able to be um, much louder than any of us was alone, and we absolutely made a difference. And so I, I think it's, you know, as listeners are, are understandably could be discouraged right now, this has been a hard period of time in Texas, it's been a really hard time for our country, but I do want folks to, to um, stay hopeful and, and recognize that, you know, social movements have always looked like this throughout our whole history. They're long, they get messy, and they can get very dark before the dawn. But we, um, you know, also in our long, proud history, have, even if it's slowly, marched towards progress. And, and that, that keeps me getting up in the morning, and I hope that your listeners take that to heart as well. I am going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news organization, and the vast majority of our funding comes from readers and listeners like you. We've experienced a bit of a slowdown in donations recently, which may have something to do with Facebook ramping down engagement with political content. But we are still here, delivering award-winning independent journalism. We are a union shop, and we have not laid anyone off during the pandemic, and our family and sick leave policies are the best in the industry. So if you believe in what we do, please consider stopping by truthout.org to make a donation today. I appreciate the reminder that even in places where Republicans are passing horrific legislation, there are people on the ground fighting tooth and nail to make that legislation less harmful and to challenge it in court. 
In Texas, we also have Dr. Alan Braid, a physician in San Antonio who has gone public about violating the state's new abortion law in order to create a test case. We are also seeing legal action and a lot of on-the-ground organizing from abortion fund organizers, some of whom are distributing pregnancy tests and emergency contraception pills and connecting people with abortion funds in other states. That kind of resistance matters, and those people deserve our support. I recently saw a scholar whose opinion is pretty well respected among liberals suggest that it was time to move out of red states. And I hate that we have to have this conversation every so often, but we really have to remember that when our advice is to flee, we are really only talking to the people who can afford to flee, which means we are telling all of the people with resources to abandon all of the people who do not have resources. And many of those potentially abandoned people are highly marginalized individuals who people of means should be fighting for. So while I am not going to tell anyone not to move to a state where they might feel safer, I am saying that preemptive obedience, surrender, and the mass sacrifice of people are a recipe for everything that we're afraid of. So we should be careful about what we call for as a remedy or response when dark days are upon us. We already have an astounding level of complicity in the United States when it comes to the mass sacrifice of human beings for the sake of maintaining order under this system. That complicity is baked into this country's history, and it's part of the social fabric of this society. Without genocide and chattel slavery, the United States would not exist. Today, we have the prison system, policing, our many levels of border security, and a labor market where essential really means expendable. Our cooperation with those systems has positioned us to accept even more mass death and unnecessary suffering, now and in the years to come, if our patterns of acceptance and complicity are not broken. But it's also important to remember that the ascent of fascist politics is a global phenomenon. I recently had a conversation with Harsha Walia for a book Miriam Kaba and I are working on, and she was kind enough to share a few words about the global context of our right-wing spiral. Really, I think it's important to pay attention to the ways in which the rise of the right and particularly fascist movements in Europe have been taking hold. Because, you know, a lot of the, the largest kind of far right gatherings are happening in Europe. Um, that's where, you know, that's where people are going to train. Uh, that's where these networks are being built and bolstered. And so I think that's really important. And, you know, here, uh, one of the things that I write about in Border and Rule um, is, you know, is based on a lot of research that researchers have been doing on the rise of the right. And one of the things that they find in common around the world, around the rise of the right, because, of course, the rise of the right looks different in different contexts, right? Like in India, for example, the rise of the right is aligned with white supremacy, but it's actually Hindu fascism, which has, you know, always been always been violent. And so it's important to pay attention to these differences, right? Um, whiteness is global, but also it, you know, so are other forms of, of violence like Zionism and Hindutva, for example. But one of the things that was like synergistic between different forms of right-wing fascism was a deep hatred towards migrants. Like anti-migrant xenophobia was one, not the only, but one of the things that almost all right-wing fascist forces had in common. 
And that has been even further escalated in the past few years with the rise of ecofascism, right? Where kind of no matter where you are, the rise of the right is increasingly connected to ecofascism. And so I think um, these kind of global trends are important to pay attention to, because while we tend to, you know, the specificity of where we are, knowing what's happening around the world, because the right travels, you know, the right literally travel and their ideas travel. And so I think we need to also be paying attention to and being vigilant about what are the things, what are the tactics, what are the ideologies that they're sharing, because that needs to then become central to how we respond um, so that we don't fall into those same kind of traps, right? And that for me is one of the other critical reasons that we need to be fighting against bordering regimes and bordering practices because fascist ideologies really rely on systems of bordering and ordering, right? Of deciding who has the right to life and under what conditions. Um, And so we really have to fight that wherever and however it takes place. What Harsha said really encapsulates it all for me. We have to fight systems of bordering and ordering, of deciding who has the right to life and under what conditions. We are not in a position where we can afford to merely counter the right. They are waging a mass battle right now. Their culture war has an astronomical body count. We cannot simply have movements that seek to fend off their advances. We need movements that exist in opposition to their death-making to have mass momentum. Raging against the vilification and abuse of migrants is crucial anti-fascist work because fear-mongering about migrants is one of the number one social weapons of fascist movements worldwide. And it's a tactic that wins the complicity of a lot of people who probably think their politics are more progressive than that. But the angle succeeds by playing on people's fears. This approach could be particularly effective in the U.S. in an era of catastrophe where hundreds of millions of people are displaced globally. Our government will continue to portray those people as menacing hordes and expect us to tolerate them being corralled into deserts or into the sea or contained in sites of disposal or returned to countries where conditions are crumbling. Because we're afraid that there simply isn't enough land or sustenance for everyone even as billionaires launch themselves into space. We have to start from a place of demanding a completely different social and political relationship with migrants and the disasters that are affecting them. As Harsha reminded me during our conversation, we have to remember the connections between our struggles. Because if we look at the fight against prisons and policing, and the battle for life on Earth, and the struggle for migrant justice, these issues only exist in silos because they have been placed in silos, in part because of the nature of the nonprofit system. We are talking about battles against human disposability and to stop the continued wholesale destruction of the natural world. These fights are intimately connected in causation, and we need robust, overlapping movements that challenge disposability, capitalism, and state violence in all of its forms. I'm not saying you shouldn't call your senator about some of the laws that are on the table or that are being enacted. I think it's important to do that and to support the people who are fighting some of those wretched laws in court and to reduce harm on the ground. But I think it's going to take so much more than that to change the political weather here in the U.S. and globally. And for that, it's not simply a matter of what immediate actions we take, but also what we cultivate. 
the right wing is creating training courses and toolkits. But we also have an unprecedented amount of political education content at our disposal, thanks to the strategic moves some people have made during the pandemic. And we can make more. We also have the opportunity to build relationships and ask radicalizing questions about why we should accept this dilapidated version of normalcy. If we want to change what's politically possible, and if we want to be ready to fight for each other and care for each other, come what may, then we need this to be an era of mass radicalization for the left that makes Occupy seem like a blip by comparison. I do want to circle back to the subject of COVID and how the right wing is interacting with it. And Shane Burley did leave me with a few more words on the subject that I would like to share with you all. I think right now there's also a period of conspiracism that, that is unprecedented to a degree. There's always a lot of conspiracy thinking at the heart of right-wing movements. And I think there's sometimes a difficulty about being able to parse out what's a conspiracy thinking, what's just false consciousness or bad politics or, uh, you know, uh, uncomfortable ideas about the world or wrong ideas about the world. But now that's not what's happening. What's happening is like our basic consensus understanding of the world is not being shared. Um, basic understandings of like materiality and viruses and just in medicine, it's very, very, very basic stuff is not having consensus. So we're having right now is hundreds and thousands of people dying of a virus that they do not need to be dying of, that we have all the tools to, to, to manage with, um, and that the, the sort of insurrection right now is creating a sort of voluntary biological mass weapon um, against folks with compromised immune systems, young people, people all across the world in reality um, that doesn't need to be. And that I think is sort of a signal of what the future of right politics is, which is to build up a populist energy on denying basic reality uh, with absolutely no concern to what the cost is. The pandemic has been a frenzied moment of mass radicalization for the right, and it has also been a moment of mass activation on the left. But we need more momentum. We have numerous fronts on which to build that momentum, and by ending pandemic unemployment benefits and allowing mass evictions to spread, the government is creating countless sites of political potential where people could begin to ask the right questions a politics that puts the survival of human beings ahead of authority and profit should not be radical, but it is. And we need to nurture those politics and that fundamental idea in all of our spaces. I still believe that forming neighborhood mutual aid pods to address COVID-related needs or for climate preparedness is a hugely important step for a lot of people. Our shared reality has fractured and it will continue to fracture. Sometimes people wonder how someone can see what they're seeing and reach different conclusions, and the truth is we are not all seeing the same things. We are seeing what algorithms are curating for us according to our existing biases, which only reinforces the walls between us. In a world that is unmooring us from one another, we need to anchor ourselves to each other, and we need to do so out of a commitment to the very basic and the very radical principle that our collective well-being and survival comes first. If we do that, we can gain crucial ground on any number of fronts and drastic ways that could shift everything. To build momentum against right-wing movements, we need life-giving movements that are politically transformational. That means our fight will never be as simple as supporting Democrats over Republicans. 
At the national level, the Biden administration is deporting Haitian refugees en masse without testing them for COVID. Sending people back to a country that's requesting a humanitarian moratorium on deportations in the aftermath of a terrible earthquake. At the local level, Democratic mayors like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, where I live, are administrators of austerity, environmental violence, and human disposal. Our movements will have to challenge these practices across the board, regardless of the deciders' political affiliations. Any hesitancy to do that harms us greatly right now. There is a lot of disaster ahead, and the fascistic right-wing answer and neoliberal and capitalist answer to those events will be to allow surplus people to die. And it's crucial that we understand that we cannot separate a fight against right-wing power or authoritarianism or any of these evils from a need to reject the norms of capitalism and how it functions. Capitalism disposes of surplus people. And the United States has already created those disposal mechanisms. They don't have to be invented by any fascist or authoritarian regime. We already have the prison industrial complex, where people who no longer have a place within our economic system wind up. We already have schools, hospitals, and social services that have embedded modes of surveillance, containment, and disposal. We already have a system of bordering that is dehumanizing and deadly. So the fascistic right-wing forces who aren't satisfied with the current level of racism and disposability we've got going on already have the fabric and the foundation that they need to enact every heinous thing they might want to do. And it isn't enough for us to be reactive and say, no, you will not take this evil to the next level. We have to say that, but we also have to attack the fascistic social fabric and those mechanisms that are already disposing of so much life and that will only become more horrific under the dominance of right-wing power. We have to be willing to delegitimize the means by which their violence is enacted and not simply quake at the thought of escalation. Both Democrats and Republicans want you to remain calm and to continue to enact the norms of capitalism while the world burns down around you. And as millions of people needlessly die, whether they're dying of COVID, starvation, drowning in floodwaters, or dying of dehydration as they traverse deserts, the powerful are counting on you to harden to all of that and remain committed to normalcy. Because that's what will keep the wheels of this system turning. Our cooperation and willingness to see each other sacrificed en masse. They are counting on individualism, and they are undermined by our collectivity when we put human survival and decency first. You cannot truly fight fascism unless you understand that. So I want to ask all of us, myself included, to think this week about who we haven't been fighting for due to a sense of inevitability. And whether those people are water protectors engaged in a pipeline fight, or incarcerated people, or even someone you know personally, I want us to defy whatever sense of inevitability might be holding us back and to do something to help. Every jailbreak begins with a decision to reject the inevitable, and we definitely need a collective jailbreak of the imagination. I believe that we can shake the world and change the weather. I believe that we can redefine what's possible. But to do that, we are going to have to cherish one another's survival, and we are going to have to be able to act on that concern together. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good 
and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.